Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. So if you're not hearing our usual intro music, or if the... Well, you're definitely not hearing it, because it's not happening. Nope. And if you're not getting the usual level of sound quality and polish, I'm going to give you a little bit of color as to why that is. We are recording from a parking lot in Southern California. Uh, we just, I, I don't think, could wait, really, to talk about what went down on Monday. Um, so we're killing some time before our flight by recording this on a cell phone in a parking lot. So it's extreme dedication, and it will also probably lack our usual polish. My voice probably also sounds like shit, but <laughs> like you said, we couldn't wait. We had to do it. You know why we're in Southern California. It was the Rose Bowl. It was beautiful. It was, even before the finish, it was everything college football is supposed to be. It was an incredible experience that we're so very fortunate to have been here for. Michigan 20, I'm sorry, Michigan 27. Yeah, don't, you can't fuck up the Alabama score. 20. The score. <laughs> Michigan 27, Alabama 20 in overtime. Rose Bowl champions, and we're playing for the national title on Monday. Yeah, I don't even really know where to begin. Um, it was stressful. It, I, I nearly died twice, I think. Only twice? <laughs> <laughs> Only twice. I don't know. Totally inconsolable at moments, like freaking out at others. It, it was absolutely spectacular. I'm still not over it. We're going to talk about it. Like, and we're sitting here like, we're going to record an episode kind of. And I was like, I don't even know if I have anything to say because I, I blacked out. <laughs> I, we haven't been able to rewatch it, obviously. We've you know still been in California and traveling. And I've got family out here we were visiting with and stuff. And and I'm like, I legitimately don't know what happened. Like I was like, did, did Loveland catch a ball? I know Roman Wilson caught one ball. Like, I, he I, caught a couple. A couple pretty, there was a touchdown, too. Yeah, I was like, I literally don't know what happened. Like I think I'm, I was just so nervous that I couldn't observe in the way that you would typically observe where I'm like, Oh, they're bringing people down in the box. Oh, they're like, Oh, look at who, who got, who made the block there or whatever. Like I didn't notice any of that. I was like, did we, how many yards did we gain? Four. Okay. We have six <laughs> left. And that was all my brain was capable of processing in real time. I think. I mean, I will say that I think at halftime in particular, and even into the third quarter and early fourth quarter, we kind of kept saying to each other, like, this is a game Michigan can win. Michigan feels like the better team here. And it's all right there. It's all there for the taking. Just go out and win it because you're kind of bullying them. And you're kind of doing all the things that we thought, like, if Michigan plays well, this is what they can do. They were making some critical mistakes, obviously. There were a lot of those that were frustrating, but it was all kind of in that context of this is really Michigan's game to win. Just go win it. And then the way the fourth quarter went, I mean, the offense kind of shuts down for a, a stretch there of about two or three possessions. They're not moving the ball. Alabama takes it down and, and punches it in to go up four. Michigan, again, does nothing on offense. Alabama gets it back. Michigan gets the stop, but Alabama kicks the field. I mean, they had two 50-plus-yard field goals, and it was another instance of Michigan special teams are struggling. Alabama's hitting two 50-plus-yarders. It seemed like all the little things, even though Michigan – kind of down to down looked like the better team for most of the game all the little things were going in the way where it was going to be another fiesta bowl like last year right where we were going to look back and say 
oh god, the muff punt, the, the missed PAT, the the dropped ball, the, the throw behind Tyler Morris where he falls down two yards short. Like it just felt like all the little things were lining up for regret for Michigan. And then with four minutes left, Michigan gets the ball back. And you said to me, I mean, you basically said something to the effect of it's over. Like we just, we just don't have it. Like, can, can you, can you see it happening? Can you see Michigan winning this game? And I looked out and I said, yeah, yeah, they're going to do it. I I see it. He did. Matt, like, this is borderline psychotic. Like I told my mother about this and she was like, you people need to be in an institution. (laughs) Oh, I'm, I'm a lunatic. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, before the game, like the night before the game, Matt in particular will just visualize. He's like, what does this game look like? like I'm doing my JJ McCarthy Zen as I, as I lay there falling asleep. I'm just, I'm not necessarily like trying to envision good things. I'm just trying to think about like, how do I see this game playing out? Yeah. And last year against TCU, I told her before the game, I said, I, I can't see it. I don't like it. Maybe that doesn't mean anything, but I just, I, I can't envision. I can't envision how Michigan wins this game, even though, all the logic said that they should. And this year I felt pretty good. You know, I told her like, I I can see it, but it was especially in that moment, like when Michigan was getting the ball back left and there wasn't a lot of reason to believe based on the way the fourth quarter had gone. And I just said like, no, I I see it. We're going to do it. Yeah. I've had two moments like that in my Michigan football fandom career, right? The first one, good one, bad, right? 2011 Notre Dame, listen, my cousin Alex was with me at this game, and one of my, you know, sorority sisters were with me at this game, and I remember very distinctly, I'd be curious if they remember it, but I remember very distinctly getting my, it was 2011, right, and getting my digital camera out that I took to record shit because I was a sorority girl in 2011 with a digital camera permanently attached to my hand. Obviously. And I remember getting out the digital camera for the the last drive of the 2011 Notre Dame game. Like, you know, that final game winning drive. And I remember being like, we're going to win this game. Like we had just, we had just, you know, given up the go ahead touchdown to Notre Dame. And I was like, it doesn't matter. We're going to win this game. And I got my, I got my camera out and I recorded that last drive. Cause I knew we were going to do it. I just felt it on the flip side. <laughs> right. In, I know where this is going. In 2015, um, I was in a Michigan bar and watching that Michigan State game and everybody in the bar is celebrating and my you know my then boyfriend at the time was like all we have to do is punt and I was like I don't I don't care we're gonna lose we're gonna lose this game I just know it and he was like how are we gonna lose this game I was like I don't know it's just gonna happen I know it's gonna happen and then of course we all know what happened so I've had that twice where I'm like I can feel it or I can't feel it but Matt Matt was feeling it he like felt the magic in the moment when the, you know, before the final game tying drive. I mean, I pulled out my phone and I have a picture of Michigan lining up first and 10 from the 25 to start that drive. I just, I just felt it. I could see it. I said, we're going to do it and we're going to win in overtime. Yeah. I mean, he, he knew, and I thought that was, that was crazy. It, It was so, it was so magical. Everything about it was really special. Well, and that was the thing is that, I mean, let we'll talk about the drive more specifically, but when was the last time Michigan won a game like that? I mean, they came back last year, like, quote-unquote, came back to beat Illinois on the game-ending drive, right? And mm-hmm. I saw a stat after the game that this tied 
that game and 2015 Indiana for the largest fourth quarter comebacks under Harbaugh of seven points. Like Michigan, certainly on this kind of stage or with these kind of stakes, Michigan hasn't won a game like this in many, uh, probably 2011 Notre Dame is about the only one that you could kind of put in a similar category, like last minute drive, huge national audience, national stage, all, all of that. Not a playoff situation, obviously, but my God, just it, it seemed so implausible in the moment. And then to be there as it played out and to do it in overtime and to beat Bama in the Rose Bowl. And then, you know, the confetti comes <laughs> streaming down. It's It was, I'll, I'll never forget it. Just magical, perfect moment. Yeah, it was great when you weren't sweating bullets or shitting bricks or whatever <laughs> We're doing all those things. That I was doing for most of the game. Um, yeah, I mean, the individual performances, the team's performances, there's just so much to say. Um, but the one thing, the, the immediate, like, first thing that I said, I think, to Matt after the game was about Blake Corum. And of course it was, because as we know, I am, like, the number one Blake Corum stan. I had a Blake Corum bobblehead for Christmas <laughs> for one of my cousins. <laughs> to so go like, along with the jersey and various other and various other Yeah, like, number one, I'm the CEO of Blake Corum. Um, but I thought that it was incredibly telling and also, like, apropos how important he was to this game, right? Like, it just felt like at all of the most critical moments of this game, they had the ball in Blake's or JJ's hands, right? And sometimes yes. both, right? I mean, the fourth and two immediately comes to mind where they... Right, fourth and two, season, legacy, everything on the line, and it's JJ to Blake in the flat for the huge play to really... Uh, all of a sudden, it's it's not like fourth and two, this is the game, like everything's on the line, it's you know, big play, we're at midfield, we're, we're moving. All of a sudden, the offense is alive in a way it hasn't been for the whole fourth quarter, and it just felt like a, a switch kind of flipped. And you're right, it was it was J.J. to Corum. And then down the stretch, you know, they, they get the play to, to Wilson. We'll talk about that one, but I mean, down the stretch, really, it was it was Corum. And it was, again, J.J. to Wilson for the touchdown. It was, they knew who got them here, right? Mm-hmm. And when the game was on the line several times, they said, go, go do it. Go, go be what we know you can be. Go finish your legacy here. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, I think it was, it was not only that it was the two of them, but in particular for Blake, I mean, they had him doing things that he doesn't really typically do. I mean, right. He caught a touchdown pass. And he also caught the ball on fourth and two. They did use they, him more as a receiver in this game than and they that's, have in any game this year, I think. In any game this year. And that's that, to me, is, I think, what made it the most emblematic of how much trust they have in him. That they were like, even in a situation that we don't typically put you in, right? Which is you're catching passes out of the back. They don't use him like Saquon, right? Like, yeah. he's not a pass-catching running back, and he really hasn't been. But they were like, we know 
that when the time comes, the ball should be in your hands and it doesn't matter how we get it in your hands. You're going to catch that pass because you're Blake Corum. Of course. And like, th- that's who you are and what you do. And even though it's not what you've typically done for us in your entire tenure, really, as a player at Michigan, we trust you to do it, even if it's not what you're accustomed to doing. And I just thought that was really telling of like the level of faith and trust that they have in Corum as a player. And it, it felt totally appropriate. I mean, he got off the bus in, an, uh, in a Pro Bowl Barry Sanders jersey which is so cool so fucking cool and then you know the the last offensive play of the game the man looked like barry sanders right he goes 17 yards you know jukes a guy out in the backfield gets into the open field gets the the key block from carson barnhart pulling all the way around from the other side of the formation then again makes the move on kool-aid mckinstry at like the inside the five uh, inside the 10 yard line excuse me breaks another tackle to spin all the way in and it was just an absolutely iconic run, like an iconic Rose Bowl run, an iconic Michigan run. And it was ultimately not just the game-winning touchdown, but we didn't realize it in the stadium, but it was the run that broke the Michigan career rushing touchdowns record, which was just perfect. Yeah. Perfect. It could not have been better for him and for Michigan. It was, I mean... You know, Matt believed before the game tying drive, but that was the moment where I was like, we did it. We're going to get this stop. We're going to get this stop. I know it. And it's going to be over. Like, we're going to do it. I I know it. Like at that moment, I was like, we have this. We do. They're not going to match it. But before then, I was I was a non-believer. I'll 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 cop to being a non-believer. I I didn't. But Matt was like, it was very funny because I'm like, oh, this is terrible. I feel terrible. Matt was like, you always feel terrible. So actually, I'm fine with this. That feels like the status quo. Every close game, there's always a moment where you're like, I I do not like how this is going. It doesn't feel good. It's not it's not going to go the right way. (laughs) It just felt like it had to come at least once in this game. Right. And it came. So that was good because we won. So it, it followed the it followed the script, which is at some point I'm like, you know, Ohio State game. It happened to I was like, God, we're fucked. Like, what you know, and and Matt's like, whatever, it's fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're <laughs> fucked. And he's like, I did that because I hadn't done it to that point in the game because I really did feel like Michigan was in a position to win and was playing quite well. And, and was and, and so it didn't come. And then eventually, you know, when Bama goes up seven, I was like, well. Here's the time. It didn't it, feel great. It doesn't feel great. Like, I, I think we're I'll, done I'll here. That. And Matt was like, perfect. Now we ha- we've checked all the boxes. <laughs> now we can go win. <laughs> and I was like, okay, good. great. We I did want to say, too, I mean, the same thing you were saying about Corum, I think is true about JJ. Like, there was a point, especially late in the game, where I made the comment along the lines of the passing game just really has not gotten it done. It didn't feel like... I, I thought JJ was playing okay, but he had a couple bad misses early. They had a couple drops. I mean, the first play of the game, for fuck's right. sake. Right, I mean, that was a, an atrocious read, atrocious throw, and J.J. got kind of bailed out by, I think it was McKinstry there, coming down just out of bounds. But he had a couple misses early, and then especially the receivers late. I mean, he had a, a critical drop from Samaj Morgan on what would have been a third-down conversion. He had a drop by uh, Donovan Edwards. And it just kind of felt like it wasn't quite there in a way that it probably needed to be. And yet, I mean, J.J. ended up... <laughs> Having a pretty fucking good game as statistically against, I mean, that secondary and that pass rush, the line held up pretty well. You know, JJ didn't take a sack. I think technically the only sack in the game was when Orgy ran out of bounds for a two yard loss on the kind of busted trick play. Yeah. Right, where they wanted to have Orgy throw and it just wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I mean, JJ ended up really putting it together, especially 
on that final drive. I mean, the throw to Roman Wilson that gets deflected and then Wilson goes up and just skies. And uh, God, if he's an inch shorter, that that's probably a game ending pick. But he had the comment after the game. He was like, <laughs> I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he said, I was the most confident in like a non-cocky way <laughs> that I was going to come down with that ball. I went up for it and it was God, bro. God just kept me up there long enough. And then, um, you know, that gets them down inside the 10 to like the five. They run the wedge with Corum and they get like a yard and a half. And then the next play was just beautifully drawn up that uh, they kind of run the, the long mesh point. Like they're going to run wedge again. The Bama defense collapses inside and Roman Wilson's coming across the formation from the backside into the flat where there's no chance of linebackers following him all the way through the wash with his speed. And it was uh, just a walk-in touchdown from there. Uh, I thought there were some really nicely drawn up plays, especially in the passing game that, you know, weren't always executed or, or sometimes were just really well defended in a way where they didn't pay off. But you had the Donovan Edwards throwback to JJ, right, for the long throw to Wilson. The JJ one hands with his right hand, spinning around with his back to the field as Dallas Turner's closing in on him. And then he spins and makes the throw to Wilson while getting hit. I mean, unbelievable right. play. JJ did some absolutely incredible things in this game to mitigate potential disaster Yes, um, that are not showing up on a stat sheet like that, right? And I right mean, before the first touchdown to Corum, if you remember, he it looks like he's going to get sacked by, it wasn't Turner, I don't think. I think it was uh, maybe Ibogaby, one of their, their defensive ends who's kind of coming through off the edge, and J.J. slips away from him, gets out of the pocket, rolls to his left, and hits Mullings up the sideline to set up the, uh, like, inside the 15, where they ultimately punched in on the, the throw to Corum. I mean, he, he did a, a lot there, and I thought... The just, flea flicker. Like, the, the botched flicker, pitch right. on the flea flicker. Like, he fell on it, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do to, like, mitigate disaster, yep. and J.J. McCarthy did a lot of it in this game. Well, and I was going to say, also, I think schematically, I mean, we talked we've talked a lot this year about Michigan probably doesn't run enough play action. They don't do the things that they really could do to maximize how the pass game builds on the run game. And I thought that was much less true in this game. It wasn't necessarily always true play action. But if you recall, in the first half, they had a, a fake pitch to Donovan Edwards, where then uh, McCarthy hits Loveland over the middle for a big gain and a first down. They had the flea flicker. They had the throwback. They had a couple play action. There was one, uh, I want to say it was early in the second half, where they run play action and they roll J.J. out, and uh, and he hits a guy on the sideline. Like, they were doing a little bit of traditional play action, a little bit of, you know, they brought Orgy in and tried that. They did, uh, you know, some rolling out. They did some fake pitch. They did the, the trick plays. They had drawn up a lot in the last month to try to find ways to get guys open against Bama's secondary because there was not going to be a lot that I mean you had from the beginning you had to scheme them open they were not going to like naturally beat right Roman Wilson and Cornelius Johnson are are pretty good players but Kool-Aid McKinstry and Terry and Arnold are maybe the two best corners in the country or two of the best that was just always going to be a Bama advantage they had to scheme stuff up in the passing game and I thought they did a pretty good job of it even if it wasn't always executed or like I said before was was well defended enough in a way that it didn't pay off um they, they did enough there that, you know, ultimately they were in position to um, to tie the game at the end and, and then win it in overtime. Yeah. I did think the game planning was really impressive, and I thought Sharon Moore probably called the best offensive game of his tenure as an offensive coordinator. I mean... Probably. Like, 
pretty close. It's top two. I like, I, I, you know, it's Bama. (laughs) Yeah. Right. 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 And the same holds true on the other side of the ball. I mean, the defense was fantastic. Yeah. Especially in the first half. I mean, that Michigan's front six, if you want to call it that, just ate Bama's offensive line all day. Mm-hmm. They did. And it was... I, I... The thing about Bama's offensive line that was just fascinating is they were kind of mid for a lot of the year, right? Oh, like, they were really struggling early in the year I mean, and then kind of came along as the year went along. And you saw against Georgia, they looked a little bit more like Bama. And I think people thought okay, they're Bama now, and Michigan made them not look like Bama. I mean, people talked about, you can't bully the bullies, and Bama's always the bully. If that was true, Michigan bullied the bullies, or Michigan was the bully. Yeah, for sure. Michigan was way more physical up front on defense against Bama's offensive line. They were also pretty aggressive in the pass rush. I mean, there were a lot of situations where they didn't really spy. We talked about that some before the game, like... I was a little worried about bringing as much pressure and, and not having a spy, just because... If you don't get home, which Michigan hasn't always this year when they've brought pressure, you can really get torched with that. And Milrow's a guy who will will make you pay if he slips out of that. But Michigan really paid it off in this game. I mean, they had six sacks, and most of those came in the first half when Bama's offense was just completely DOA. They couldn't hold up, and Milrow couldn't process what he was seeing fast enough in coverage to you know, find guys underneath or get rid of the ball or whatever. It was a dominant performance in the first half. And then I thought Bama adjusted pretty well. They started um, going a little bit more like same side run, doing a little bit more run action, letting their kind of larger offensive linemen wear on Michigan a little bit and try to slow down the pass rush. And that, that worked to some extent. I mean, Bama moved the ball reasonably well, I thought in the second half on the ground, but Michigan held up when it mattered still. And that's a tough way to make your money against Michigan with their defensive tackles is, You'll get some stuff, but it's it's hard to do that consistently. And when they got into scoring situations, like in the fourth quarter, I mean, they got the one that they punched in, but there were a couple others where they had drives that looked kind of promising, and then Michigan killed it. For sure. Yeah. How we were going to elect to defend them was a topic of conversation that we talked about it on and off for days yeah. in the in the lead up to the game um, because I listened to Brian Cook at MGO Blog suggest that we not spy Milrow. And I, frankly, I got to tell you, had not even contemplated that Michigan would not spy Milrow. Like, that felt like a foregone conclusion to me. Well, and to clarify, I think what he was suggesting was convert that guy into a blitzer. Just bring pressure because his numbers under pressure are pretty bad. And I said, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that, just because it's it feels very boomer bust. You probably get some sacks. You might also eat some 60-yard touchdowns, and I'm not sure that's the way you want to play against this Bama offense where that's... They're not super efficient. They're not very efficient, right. They need those big plays, and they get them. But, man, Michigan really... And, and I think this is an important addition here. The secondary, I mean, Will Johnson completely shut down Jermaine Burton, who was one of the best receivers in the SEC this year. He ended up with, I think, four catches for 21 yards, and only two of those were Johnson targets, and none of them were catches. Like, Johnson did not give up a completion and coverage in this game. He made some real money for himself. Not not this year, since he can't leave, but a year from now. I mean, that's the kind of thing where that matchup, 
if you dominate a matchup like that, you've made yourself some money at some point down the road. I mean, early in the first half, I can't remember exactly when it occurred, but there was a, a target in Will Johnson's direction, and you turned to me, and I know he wears the number two, and he has, you know, whatever, but you turn to me, and he goes, he looks like Woodson out there, because he's just running the route for, he was in a much better position to come down with the ball than the receiver was. He was, absolutely ran him off his route. I think the last Bama drive at the end of the first half, when they ended up kicking a field goal, but they had the ball at, like, the Michigan 40, and this was one of the few times Milrow dropped back and had a lot of time. I think Michigan kind of sat back on this one. But he looks and he looks and he throws the bomb up the sideline to Burton. And Johnson is right in stride with him to the inside, you know, pinning him up against the sideline. And Burton ends up basically playing defense to keep it from being a pick. And yeah, I mean, just just seeing that coverage as he's looking back and going up for the ball in the end zone at the Rose Bowl. And he's wearing, I don't know if y'all noticed this, but... Will Johnson in this game was wearing the high white socks and, and the, the black gloves, just like Woodson in 97. And the black cleats instead the black of the cleats, Jordan yep. ones. He, yeah. he went full Woodson, and it right. felt very intentional. Yeah, and, right, and seeing that play, it was like, my God, that's that's Woodson. Like, I'm having flashbacks right now. And I, it's hard to say something like that about anybody Anyone? ever <laughs> to make that kind of comparison. But when you do that, that you warranted that comparison. Like, you played up to that. So, I mean, he played well in the secondary as a whole. I mean, really didn't give up anything huge in the passing game. Yeah, I mean, and in fairness, like, obviously Jermaine Burton is good, but Bama's receipt, like, this is not a Jamison Williams, Jerry, Judy. Like, they, they don't have the no, Bama receiving breaker. core of old, right? No. Like, it's, it's a step down from those guys, I think, pretty clearly. Right. But he erased them. I mean, I saw on social media after the game – Mikey Sainer still was clowning a lot of people on social media after the game, as he should. And there was a clip that I think the Rose Bowl's, like, official account posted of Jermaine Burton at, um, like, media availability. And he said something like, like, there was a question in, like, the little Instagram question box, you know? And it was like, what do you think about when you, like, take the field? What are you going to be thinking about when you take the field at the Rose Bowl or whatever? And he says, murder. And, like... You know, Mikey reshares that to his story and is like, 21 yards, bro. Like, <laughs> like I need you to be so serious. And I just... It, there was kind of a lot of that from the Bama play. I mean, not necessarily shit-talking, but kind of soft shit-talking. Jalen Milrow before the game, right, and the media availability, they'd asked him about, you know, Marvin Harrison said after Ohio State played Michigan that they were throwing a blizzard of coverages at him the way he'd never seen before, and... You know, the, with what Michigan's defense has accomplished this year and with, you know, the way that people have talked about them and what they can do, how are you going to be ready for that? And how are you going to react when you see things that maybe you haven't seen on film before? You know, how do you how do you prepare for that? I think was the gist of the question. And his comment was basically just, like, I, I play in the SEC, man, best best conference in the country. There's nothing they can do that I haven't seen in the SEC. And then before the game, as guys were coming out on the field, you had... Kool-Aid McKintry standing in front of the Michigan receivers, just staring them down as they're going through warm-ups. And the Bama offensive line walking through the Michigan sideline and staring people down. You know, just Like just show of force stuff. Right. It, it was yeah. very, know that we are Bama, and we are here, and we're ready for you. And Michigan went out and bullied them. I said at one point, I mean, I think it was one of the kick returns. Where, uh, God, I can't, I can't remember who it was, so I feel bad that I, I'm missing who the Michigan player was, but, you know, the Bama guy brings it out and just gets 
somebody. It might have been Quentin Johnson. Actually, it might have been a, a defensive play. But there were a couple in particular that. No, it was the it was the kick return. We we baited them into bringing it out. Like right. like left it and a little short. The guy just short. gets lit up at like the eleven yard line, and and this was I think just after Michigan had taken the lead, and I said we look like Georgia. Like we are the more physical team here. Right. If you took the jersey, like you always think it's going to be Bama. It's the SEC speed size narrative of like they're more physical and. It's just a question of can you hold up to that well enough? And the answer is almost always no, like in the playoff setting especially. And in this game, Michigan looked like the bigger, stronger, faster team. And that was really jarring. And that was part of, I think, why we felt like this this is it. Like, it's there for the taking. Just do it. And thank God they did it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was a special teams play. I can't remember who it was, and I feel bad about it too because we – he, whoever he was, he laid the fucking wood. And Quentin Johnson did that later too. I think it was on a, it was after a sack. So Bama was in like a third and twenty four, and they run a quarterback draw. And if you remember earlier in the first half, Milrow had scrambled on like a third and six, and he slid early, like three yards short. It was a terrible decision where he probably gave up a first down. Yeah, I and think. And then the next possession, he scrambles and he needs like twenty four yards or whatever. And he gets, like, halfway there, and he doesn't slide. He's like, I'm going to put my shoulder down. And Quentin Johnson just trucks him. And it was another one that was like, Milrow's a big dude. He's bigger than Quentin Johnson. And Michigan is the one punishing physically in this game. Yeah, I'd be curious to rewatch the play um, in which Milrow stops short. And obviously, we're going to rewatch the game, like, first thing when we have the obviously. opportunity to do it probably on Thursday after we we get back but like I saw some debate on Twitter about whether or not he actually intended to slide or if he just fell like there's there's some suggestion that the turf monster just got him and he he went down a little bit earlier than he otherwise would have and but it looked to me like he slid it doesn't really make sense though that like if it's a turf monster situation it's usually when you're trying to change directions horizontally and yeah your foot slides out you don't fall backwards from the turf monster, right? Like, yeah, no, I saw people suggesting you, that he slipped because yeah, no, that looked clearly to me like a slide. I think he just in the moment saw the, uh, the linebacker and the safety coming up and his instinct said, get down before you get hit without really realizing the, the situation and that he needed a couple of yards and probably needed to take some contact to drive through and get the, the extra yard there to get the first down. I mean, I think it resulted in a fourth and four. It was fourth and three or fourth and four. And like a situation punished. where maybe had you'd gotten one or two more, you were in go for it territory as opposed to punt territory. Right. Um, but if, if it was intentional, the situational awareness was not quite there right. for him. Um, but like, I did see some people coming to his defense being like, he obviously fell because people were starting to narrative it. Like we always talk about how JJ McCarthy for better or for worse, that guy lowers his fucking shoulder and takes a hit. He very often does not slide, much to our dismay, right. right? Like, he doesn't give himself up, and he goes and he gets those yards. And we think about the 2022 Ohio State game, right? At the goal line, he lowers his shoulder, and he trucks a guy, and he gets into the end zone, right? And yep. and th that narrative, I think, started emerging about Milrow. Like, he's not gunning for the yards. And I saw people being like, guys, he obviously slipped. Like, chill. So I'd be curious to see what it looks like when I can I really think see it on TV. I from, from but... what I saw. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily a narrative about Milrow in general. I haven't seen him be afraid to take contact and be physical for the most part. But I, I just think it was... Again, more like instinct without really thinking about, I, I have to get those extra two yards to keep the chains moving here. Yeah. 
But uh, you mentioned special teams. We should probably talk a little bit about that because that was oh my God. almost <laughs> almost the the biggest regret here, right? Between you have the Samaj Morgan muff punt where he comes up on it after the first the first stop, right? Bama goes three and out. They punt, and it's a kind of short not not exactly a shank, but a little short off toward the sideline. And I kind of get it because if he makes that catch on the run. He's, he's running. He's right. He's at full speed, and he's got one or two guys up the sideline for Bama that he's probably getting to midfield or beyond, and setting Michigan up in really promising to uh, like really promising situation offensively. But he doesn't. You know, he doesn't quite get to it. It comes through his hands as he's trying to run up to it. Bama recovers, and a few plays later, they they punched in on the uh, the run where McClellan slips through the line. And that was really all they had offensively right. in the first that half. That was what made it so frustrating, right? It's like if you, you know, if you muff that and then Michigan gets a stop, it's like, oh, okay, that's annoying, but it didn't really impact the, the game. And that obviously didn't turn out to be uh, the case on this one, unfortunately. And then they take the lead, and you have the, the bad snap on the extra point where it looked like it was kind of a ground ball snap, right? It went under the, the holder's hands, if I, I saw it correctly. And so it's 13 to 7 and that ended up being pretty relevant down the stretch where you know <laughs> the Roman Wilson touchdown could have been potentially just to to win the game in regulation whereas it was instead to tie and it, it felt for a while like that was going to be uh you know a potentially deciding factor fortunately it, it wasn't with the way overtime played out but it was just uh oh and then my god the uh Jake Thaw right they put Jake Thaw back I, I thought that was a pretty <sighs> I disagreed with the coaching decision, basically. I don't think it's even worth having a returner back there in that situation, especially a guy who hasn't played all game. Like, if you think Morgan is, is your guy, and he's been the guy out there all day catching punts, put him back there. And if you don't, don't put anybody back there. It's just not worth the risk. I mean, what's the upside there is that the guy catches it at the 7 and, and you save yourself from being back at the 1, but if he muffs it, which is exactly what happened... You have that possibility, and and much worse. I mean, that was, you know, a foot maybe from being a game-ending safety or a touchdown for Bama if he can't quite field it cleanly. It was, I just didn't like the, um, the situation that Thaw was put in there. And I didn't either, but I will say, you know, I've seen a lot of people debating this on the internet. Like, I'm going to give incredible credit to Jake Thaw. Because on the one hand, I understand he put himself in this situation. He muffed it. The, the coaches kind of put him in this situation too, coming in cold, having not done this all day, and say, go field this punt in the most important moment of the game, right. perhaps. But Well, and with 20 seconds left, that's the thing is that you, it's not like you're expect, you're not really setting yourself for up, up for a return there that's going to give you some meaningful advantage in the last 20 seconds of that game. If there's 50 seconds left, I think that's a different situation, right? Yeah. Where if you can get a, a little bit of a return out of it or give yourself a, you know, a, a, a decent chunk of yardage by not letting Bama down it inside the five and you think we can go win the game right now, I, I think that makes sense. I just didn't think it made sense given the time and the, the yardage and all of that. It seems so low upside and high, I'm with high you. risk. I'm with you, but I'm going to give the kid massive credit because coming up with that ball, like not panicking – Coming up with the ball, maintaining the composure, and doing enough to keep that from being a game-ending safety or worse, a touchdown, requires incredible poise. And I understand he had to mess it up in the first place, but to have the poise to fix your mistake and not make the mistake literally cost you a shot at a national title 
is actually a very impressive thing to do under those circumstances. And he's not getting enough credit for doing it because he muffed the punt in the first <laughs> right. place. But If you kind of bail yourself out from your own mistake, it's sort right. of a wash. But I, I do think he, he deserves credit for that because a lesser man would have panicked. Absolutely A lesser man panicked. would have fallen, in the words of Jim Harbaugh on day one as Michigan football coach. Right? Like, I just, I mean... You know, I, I no, still it, think it was, yeah. I still think it, that was an impressive level of composure from the kid. That's all yeah. I'm saying, right? Yep. And then the one thing we haven't talked about yet is really the end of the game. I mean, Bama drives down. They ha- they get the. Uh, well, uh, let me back up actually. So Bama has, uh, I think, second and eight or something like that, and they run the outside zone where Mason Graham slips through, like penetrates inside, and blows it up. And then Bama takes a uh, false start, if I remember right. It, it was third and, and pretty long. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm going to have to check the, um, the, check the play-by-play the box, here. Listen, I got to tell you, I, I blacked out. I know exactly what happened on the last play. And besides <laughs> that, I don't know I don't know anything that happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so it was second and goal from the nine. And they run the outside zone to McClellan, and he gets blown up. So they lose five. So it's third and, uh, third and goal from the 14. Okay, so they, they didn't take a penalty. It was just third and goal from the 14. And they throw that little back shoulder out inside the five to Burton. That was one of his few catches in this game, actually, but not not defended by Will Johnson, but it did get them down to the three. And then Bama comes out in an unbalanced formation. It's fourth and three. All of us are dying in the stadium. (laughs) Michigan takes a timeout. And this is the one, it's kind of annoying that people are misrepresenting what Nick Saban said. When they're talking about the final play, and he, yeah. he made a comment along the lines of, you know, we came out and we thought they had something, and and they called timeout, and then you know we came out again and they had flipped they had flipped their defense, and so we called timeout. You know, we thought we had something on the first one, and they must have known. Like first of all, it's it's fourth down, <laughs> and they've just thrown a completion to the side. Like Bama's not signaling in a play here; they're not going hurry up. There's no signal to steal if you're Michigan here. Right, they took a timeout. <laughs> well, not on the first one, right? And Michigan took the timeout uh, I, on the first one. Okay, right. But, I mean, Bama comes out in a, a kind of wonky, unbalanced formation, and Michigan sees this, and they take timeout. Time the next play, Bama comes out in the same formation but flipped, and Michigan has adjusted the defense and also flipped, so Bama takes the timeout. So it's fourth and three. We've, At this point, you know, we've died like 47 deaths in the, the span of five minutes waiting for this play to run as we're just sitting there in the stadium going like, please, God, one play. One play for the Rose Bowl and everything. And, you know, they finally run it. And I've seen a lot of back and forth about kind of the, the decision on the pl- the play call and, and the, the path that Milrow took and exactly what it was supposed to be. Still a little bit unclear, but they did have a running back motioning out into the flat. And I think usually what you see on these sorts of like quarterback power, quarterback counter is you'll see a, a quick pump fake to the running back to try to get the linebacker to vacate the space. And Milrow didn't do that, I think because the snap was low. He didn't really have a chance to come up and do a pump fake. I also don't think it would have mattered because Colson was running out with the running back anyway, so he wasn't relevant to the play. What was very relevant to the play that blew it up entirely was primarily Josiah Stewart coming mm-hmm. from what would have been the top of the screen from the TV angle. He's lined up against Bama second-team All-American J.C. Latham, 360-pound right tackle. 
and he absolutely walks him directly back into Milrow's path and takes out his legs and puts him on his ass. And, I mean, props to the rest of the defensive line because Derek Moore basically meets him at the quarterback at the line of scrimmage. And meanwhile, Kenneth Grant and Mason Graham on the interior haven't gone anywhere. So you've just got four guys There's meeting. no push right. for Bama. There's no push. And the defensive ends have entirely collapsed, especially Stewart, the tackles, right back into the, the designed path. And, I mean, I don't think he, he... If he gained any yardage, it was like a foot. It was the length of the football, if anything. And it was... I, I mean, we couldn't really tell from the angle we were sitting in, which was toward the opposite end of the stadium from where overtime was being played. Yeah, but I could tell he was not in the fucking end zone. Oh, no, It was fourth right. and goal from the three. No, I... I my point was that when they ran that play, I thought, as I saw Milrow running, I kind of thought it was going to be like a, a JT with short situation. Like, oh my God, it's going to be, you know, he's going to get to the goal line and I'm just going to be sitting here with my fingers crossed being like, please God, please be short, please be short. And instead he just, you know, he goes right into this pile at the line of scrimmage and immediately Michigan's guys are pouring off the bench. Kenneth Grant's ripping his helmet off, running down the field at astronomical rates of speed for a guy who's 360 pounds. And, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was very clear, even from where we were sitting, that like, oh my God, it's it's over. <laughs> they did it. And, and we uh, were instantly in tears. You correct. and I both were immediately in tears. There are pictures on Twitter <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're interested in such a thing. But yeah, I mean, it was what we talked about at the beginning. It was, you know... They score. They got the touchdown in overtime, and we're kind of thinking like, "Oh my God, four, four plays!" And then they get down to fourth downs, like one play. Just please, please end it. And I think they did take a false start on the overtime drive, though. I think it was like they took a false start on the overtime drive, and then Milrow like either scrambled and picked up the penalty yardage and then some and set up the final series of four plays that yielded the fourth and three. Honestly, I'm telling you, I can't fucking remember. There's nothing listed in the play by play. Their their overtime sequence was they had a run for a yard and then a Milrow scramble for 15 on second and nine. And then they had the loss of of five back to the 14, the pass to the three and then then the game. Fair enough. Maybe I'm just confusing drives and I probably did because like I said, I don't, I literally blacked out. I'm I'm being so serious (laughs) when I tell you. Were Were you even watching the fourth down play? I did watch the fourth down. You did, okay. I did watch the fourth down play, but there were definitely some where Serena just her head was in her hands. Everybody, I'm not sure how much she knew. Everybody is standing up around me, and I am literally just sitting in my seat with my fingers over my face. But I'm doing like the they're slightly split apart thing, like web scary movie thing, scary movie thing. But the problem is, we like there was a gap where I could still see the scoreboard. Like the screen was right in front of me. So like, even if I was sitting and like trying, like I had to really be like closing my eyes to not see, but I, I did see. Um, so I saw what happened and it was unbelievable. I mean, it was truly, truly a moment like I've never experienced before. It was incredible. I, there's no amount of money. There's no amount of anything that I would trade that moment for. It was spectacular in every way. It was pure ecstasy at that moment. I mean, we were obviously on the Michigan side of the stadium. The other side cleared out pretty quickly. <laughs> the Michigan side, Did not. much less so. I mean, it was, yeah, like I said, it was ecstasy all, all around us in that moment. And, um, you know, like I said, the confetti coming down and the players just streaming around the field, the, the roses, the rose petals all over. It was, uh, yeah, a, a moment I'll never forget. And I, I wouldn't have traded anything to, um, in hindsight, I'd have given anything to, to have been there for that moment and to have actually gotten to be there. I'll, uh, I'll never forget it. 
No, me either. I mean, even the, like I said, off the top, the, the setting, like even in the fourth quarter when I, I didn't necessarily know how it was going to play out. I mean, I still felt okay, but you didn't know. We had a couple of kind of Bama fans behind us. I, I will say the fan experience was pretty good in that regard. The Bama fans were, were pretty pleasant. They have won six national titles in the last 13 years or whatever. So maybe they're, uh, that's taking the edge off, I imagine for them. But, you know, I was talking to the guy behind me who was a Bama fan and we're kind of looking around as the sun's setting over the the San Gabriel Mountains, and you know it's the fourth quarter. It's getting dark, and the lights are on, and they've done Mister Brightside, and then they did Dixieland Delight, where the Bama fans were going crazy, and we were just looking around like, man, this is what college football is all about. Like, this is perfect. It's Michigan and Bama and the Rose Bowl, and it's it's awesome. It's beautiful. And then, I mean, on top of that, the, the to get that ending, to get probably one of the two or three best semifinal game endings in the playoff era I, I there was that georgia oklahoma rose bowl 2017 yeah yeah that was kind of a shootout and then that same year georgia bama went to overtime for the national title and then you had a couple bama clemson um championship games that went right down to the final play but i mean this is in that that tier right of best playoff games there have ever been and the uh the tv ratings certainly showed that i don't know if you've <laughs> y'all have seen those but this was the most the most watched non-NFL sporting event since 2018 Olympics. Had, uh, I think, 20, 27 million viewers was the average, if I remember right, and it topped out at, like, 33 million. Right, just like a whole tenth numbers. of the United States. <laughs> just about, yeah. Yeah. And they all got to uh, to partake in the biggest Michigan moment in 26 years, probably. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. I, I will say... I, I had a similar, you know, view of the Bama fans. I thought in general they were really friendly. Um, I didn't really have anything negative to say about them. I do think that winning six national championships takes the edge off. You made the comment of, like, how annoying it was that all the especially before the game, as we're all, you know, kind of uh, making our way around the outside of the stadium, and you see all the Bama fans wearing, like, the scarves or whatever that say, like, you know, 2020 national championship or whatever. And it's like, y'all have all this national championship gear from like the last decade. Just let us have one. Right. I'm like, y'all do not need this. Okay. I need this. You don't need this. I need it. Go home. 2020 national champions. Like, shut up, shut up. Like to go along with the 2017 national championship and the 2015 or whatever, I, I lose track of the Bama Clemson ones, which was which, but yeah. So on that note, Michigan is playing for the national championship. Oh, wait, I want to say one more thing. One more, okay. I want to say one more thing about the Bama fans. I had, Matt and I had like a collaborative thread. I tweeted it out, but he, he and I worked on it together before I tweeted it out about the Georgia fans at the Orange Bowl in 2021. Like how they either all look like Kirby Smart cosplay or they look like Sack from Wedding Crashers if they're slightly younger or they look like Yukon Cornelius from the Rudolph like claymation movie. Right. And those were the categories. And I think it was Spencer Hall like retweeted it and was like, this is actually all SEC fans. <laughs> and I found out that was still true. Um, when we were in Pasadena because the Alabama fans totally fit the mold too, except that I did feel like there were more like normal looking Bama fans, like who are just wearing jeans and normal shit and not their like weird preppy. There were definitely, there was a, a pretty good contingent of like the, you know, the, the red sparkly jacket or like the black sparkly knee high boots. There were some very 
Bama outfits out there. Extraordinary outfits. I mean, I'm talking the houndstooth skirts, like the oh, Bear yeah. Bryant, like houndstooth skirts. It was crazy. It was such an interesting thing to be able to observe, like a full sparkly dresses, full sparkly blazers, oh, yeah. bedazzled cowboy boots. Like it was honestly really, really fun. It's such like an interesting thing like to be clash, in- yeah of. culture clash thing to be able to observe and also like i just heard some of the most like deeply southern shit i've ever heard in my life <laughs> in in and around the like run-ups this game i've never spent really any time in the u.s south like period i've basically never been there like i've been to florida and i've been to new orleans and like when i say florida i mostly mean miami which doesn't really count like that's that's Cuba. It's not America. Not like Gulf Coast, Florida. Right. But like, I've never spent any substantial time in the, in the U S South at all ever. And so like, you know, we were walking around, um, like Beverly Hills, right. On the day before the game. And we're all in our Michigan stuff as we walk around and you get just like the most authentic, like drawly roll tide. Oh yeah. We got like, <laughs> you could possibly get from like opposing fans. It was very funny, but so the, authentic. I it loved was it. amazing. Honestly, I loved it. I loved to hear it. I was like, this is so cool. Um, but also we, like we said, we had these, these two Bama fans behind us and they were so chill. Like they were older men, like six, 50, 60s probably. Yeah. And like, they were so chill. Like I'm talking during the game and there was a play I tweeted about it, but I didn't know if it got shown on the broadcast where after the play Clemens gets absolutely like taken down and thrown to the ground. Not by only his... after the play, but he's like 30 yards downfield, totally away from the play. Like, yeah. And, and he gets pulled, thrown down by his helmet. And the ref is six, like four feet away, right, like yeah. literally right there. The ref was basically next to them and it d- d- doesn't throw the flag. The Bama fans behind me are like, you know, I don't know about that. Like they're like being reasonable they about officiating, yeah. which I was like, oh, they really don't need this actually. Like they j- they do not fucking care. Right. <laughs> like I'm like, where is the flag? What the fuck? And they're like, yeah, that seems wrong to me. Like, and we were like, okay. But the one thing that they said was absolutely unbelievable. I was like, I, I, I want to put this in my, I'm putting this on record. So I remember it until the end of time was, it was like a very Michigan section, right? It's an overwhelmingly Michigan section. Then you got these like two guys in their crimson standing right behind me and Matt. And they're obviously out of place, right? Like they don't, they, they they don't everybody else is in maize and blue surrounding them yeah there weren't a lot of bama fans on the michigan side there were some michigan fans on the opposing side which i think was how it became more like probably 60 40 michigan but there weren't a ton of bama fans on the michigan side so yeah you could the ones who were there they stuck pr- out i feel a little out of place they stuck out and there was this this one gentleman who was a michigan fan but he was from texas so he was deeply like southern also and he's got this drawl and he's got this accent he's talking to the two bama fans next to him and he says and i fucking was in tears because I loved it. He said that, um, that these two Alabama fans, because they looked so out of place, he said, y'all are like black beans and gumbo. (laughs) And I was like, I, (laughs) this is the best black beans and gumbo. (laughs) Like this is, this is Valhalla. Like we're, we're here. Like it was so funny. It was amazing. Just like tidbits from being in the stadium. But it really is one of the most unique things I think about bowl game season. Like I had never been yeah. to a bowl game before the orange bowl. And so like, you know, I'm so accustomed to seeing 
Ohio State fans and Michigan State fans who are basically just us except dumber and in different colors. And so I'm like, they're not different. There's not like a, a real different culture or anything but the Bama fans it was very very interesting to be able to get that perspective it was really yeah. fun um and like I said the guys behind us were like very cool and totally reasonable and and so you know yeah, it was a pretty good experience in that regard separate from the outcome although yeah. I, I told you I said I, I wish it doesn't exist obviously but I do wish that like somehow there was photos or video of us in like the five seconds after the game ended yeah because, I mean, I said it was ecstasy. That's the the only word I can really think of. But, you know, jumping up and down, hugging everybody around us, and then just, I mean, I remember, like, about five seconds after that, like, just sinking into my seat in tears. Because, like, we did it. <laughs> we really did it. And now, We're national championship. For a national championship in, f- this is the third, so in five days. That's right. And we ah. get Washington. <laughs> We spent a little bit of time during the week just kind of hypothesizing, like, okay, if if we get there, would you rather play Washington or Texas? And I think we're generally in an, we were generally in agreement that Washington felt like the better matchup for a couple reasons. The primary one is that Texas's defense is kind of built inverse from Alabama. I mean, they have two of the best defensive tackles in the country, probably the best defensive tackle in the country, in Tavondre Sweat. Their secondary. It's a little shakier, but I'm looking at that defense saying... No, it's not shakier. It's it's bad. Like, I think I saw that they were, like, 102nd in pass defense. Like, that is not a good pass defense, period. Sure. My point, though, was that they are really built kind of in, in probably the optimal way if you were going to build a defense to go up against Michigan. Like, we can, you know, we can get by in the secondary against receivers who are fine, but are probably not going to be, like, game breakers. And those are Michigan's receivers. But when you have two of the best defensive tackles in the country, and you can just kind of physically manhandle almost any offensive line you go up against, probably even including Michigan's without Zach Zinter, I didn't love that matchup on that side of the ball. And you're still talking about a pretty good offense in Texas. I mean, I do think Michael Penix is you know has proven himself to be better than Quinn Ewers, but Xavier Worthy, A.D. Mitchell, you know the, the Texas run game I think has been better than Washington's for most of the year. That just felt like on the whole, an offense that's probably not quite at Washington's level, but maybe one notch down, and a defense that's much, uh, not only better, but much more well-designed to match up against Michigan specifically. Whereas Washington, I mean, we've seen some of the stats going around. Their defense is not particularly good. I believe it's 27th in SP plus and 44th in FEI. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a pretty average Power 5 defense. And then especially against the run. I'm going to pull up the the numbers here, so give me just a second, but their run defense in particular is uh is is pretty bad, frankly, especially when you get into kind of some of the um the advanced metrics. So give me just a second here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's right, like matchup-wise, but ultimately, I mean, Michael Penix and those receivers still do s- scare the fucking daylights out of me. I, yeah. I got to tell you. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, okay, so I've pulled up Washington's uh, – this is based on EPA. So, like, expected points added. Basically, do you improve or uh, – <laughs> basically, does your situation get better or worse on any given play? That's kind of how EPA is calculated. And Washington's run defense, total EPA, 116th nationally. Per play, 119th nationally. Per game, 112th nationally. And then success rate, 
which is essentially are you staying ahead of the chains or are you stopping the other team from staying ahead of the chains? 126 defensively. This is a very bad run defense. And that just feels to me like Michigan can play its game on that side of the ball. And Washington is going to have to overcommit to have any hopes of holding up against the run. And if they do that, you open up other things. Either either you can't hold up or you have to overcommit in a way where there are other things open and you've got J.J. and the tight ends and the receivers against a secondary that's, again, not particularly good. Like, I just feel like Michigan's offense really has the right kind of matchup on that side of the ball to to do what it wants to do and for Washington to be able to have any hopes of holding up, they're going to have to to compromise some things. But as you said, <laughs> that's probably going to be necessary. You're probably going to need to score some points in this game because Michael Penix, Romo Dunze, Jalen McMillan, Jalen Polk, I mean, this is an elite passing game. I said I think this team feels kind of like 2021 Ohio State or 2022 Ohio State, but with a much worse defense. Yeah. Like, I, they're going to score points. I mean, we've seen Michigan hold up pretty well to Ohio State three years in a row, but they've allowed, what was it, 27 points, 23 points, 24 points. Washington's going to score, you know, 20-plus points in this game, realistically. Yeah, it's just weird. The thing about Washington is, like, I, I don't know what to make of them at all, which is to say... We watched them score literally no offensive touchdowns against Arizona State. They've had like some weird zero games. Correct. offensive touchdowns against Arizona State, right? They had a, a pick six. Yep. Right? Late in that game when they were losing, and Arizona State had a chance to probably end it in right. the fourth quarter. Yes, and Arizona State, like, a bad Arizona State team, mind you. Like, yes, that team correct. sucks. Like, fuck that up in a big way. And But then you watch them and, like, here comes Oregon, and they're like, light work, we got this, right? Here comes right. Texas, we've got this. But, like, also you suck against Arizona State. And, like, a whole bunch of, like, mid-tier Pac-12 teams, right? I mean, they had a whole bunch of one-score games against mediocre to bad Pac-12 teams. They ended up playing a pretty – I mean, like, Arizona, we thought early in the year was not anything, and then they turned out to be a 10-1 yeah, you know, I'm not talking about and... Arizona. I'm talking about, like, Cal and shit. Like, I'm talking about, like – bad to mid-tier Pac-12 teams. They kind of played to the level of competition all year. And at some point, I mean, I, I said it feels like Ohio State the last two years, but with a worse defense, it also kind of feels like TCU. That's what's giving me the heebie-jeebies. I'm like, fucking kill me. <laughs> On one hand, yes. On the other hand, I mean, that team had its magic run out against a team that was just physically and you know performance-wise better in Georgia and the wheels totally fell off. I don't think that's going to happen with Washington. But I do think that for for Washington to win this game, it feels like they have a, a somewhat narrow path, which is that Michael Penix has to be elite. I mean, he has to he has to do against Michigan what he did against Texas, and they're going to have to score 35-plus points, I, I think, to win and that game. Michigan's pass defense is not Texas's. Right. <laughs> like, let, let's, you know, let's call it what it is. Right. We did see some some blips, you know, Maryland, Ohio State. Like, there were teams that had legitimate quarterbacks, quarterbacks who are not as good as Michael Penix, who were able to, to manufacture some things down the field in the passing game. And Michigan's going to have to figure that out. But, I mean, we just saw Will Johnson shut down Jermaine Burton. And, you know, we've seen these guys. Romo Dunze is better than Jermaine Burton, though. Sure, but we also saw Michigan handled Marvin Harrison pretty well. I mean, he made a few plays, but He's he didn't. Harrison. He didn't right. Yeah. And I just I think from what we've seen of Jesse Minner, he's going to have enough there. And then you know you brought up the point when we were talking earlier that 
you're going to find out if this is if this Washington offensive line is really like Joe Moore award worthy because Michigan won it in 2021 and then they went up against Georgia and it was pretty quickly clear that oh, all of these guys we're going up against are just bigger, stronger, faster. Michigan's offensive line is very good, but it cannot hold up to this. And I don't think Michigan's off, uh, defensive line is going to have that significant of an advantage against uh, Washington. Their they, line is built a little bit more like Ohio State's to pass protect. So, you know, they're small, uh, right? They're, they're a little small bit undersized because they're pass protectors. Like they 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 do the thing Ohio State does, where it's like they play five tackles. Like they don't sort of, really yeah. have their guards aren't. Trevor Keegan and Zach Zinner, right? They don't play guards like Michigan plays guards. That's right. And they're going to have to hold up to, you know, Mason Graham, Chris Jenkins, Kenneth Grant. There's not a team they've played that has an interior like Michigan's. And if they can push the pocket. And Even get- Texas, which is to say Texas has the two guys. Correct, yes. But they, they can't keep them as fresh as Michigan is able to keep their defensive tackles because of the rotation. Like, there's a drop-off after... And Sweat, in particular, is not really a pass rusher. Like, he can move the pocket a little bit just because he's so big. But those guys do more in terms of just eating up the interior rather than pushing the pocket like Michigan's guys can. So if you can collapse that and get Penix throwing off his back foot a handful of times or getting a little bit uncomfortable or not having enough time to let that downfield stuff develop where they really make their money, that it feels like Washington has a really narrow path here given what Michigan should be able to do on the other side of the ball and what Washington has become. And it's probably worth mentioning too that Dylan Johnson – their you know standout number one running back he's been dealing with an ankle injury for i guess a little while since late in the regular season and he went down and looked pretty pretty injured late in the texas game um and it's i guess the the quotes coming out from washington are that he's expected to be ready to play they're kind of giving the like the the vague you know we're, we're going to do everything we can and we think he's going to be out there it, it feels to me like this has vibes of 2020 to Blake Corum against Ohio State, where it's like he's going to put on a uniform and they're probably going to try to put him out there, but whether he's going to be a real factor, I'm skeptical. That'd be a, a pretty quick, a, a pretty quick healing <laughs> for him to be able to do much after you know the way that he went down at the end of the Texas game. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think we're going to do more to preview Washington. We'll probably record another episode Saturday. I think is is probably the idea. Saturday morning, maybe. Yeah, sometime late in the week, we'll we'll get something out with a little bit more preview. We didn't actually have a chance because we were leaving the Rose Bowl with the timing of that game, um, and then getting back to the hotel. We saw snippets basically of the late first half, and then toward the end of the uh, toward the end of the game, uh, the Texas Washington game. I mean, but we didn't really have a chance to watch all of that one. So I think we're, we're uh, interested to to actually see that and, and absorb a little bit more and kind of get more of a feeling out of Washington. We watched a decent amount of Washington this because year. Because they played so many close games. Right. Right? Like, I didn't watch a ton of Bama. Like, there was some of Bama because they played some close games, too. I watched, like, almost none of Georgia because they didn't play any close games. But when you've got, like, you know, a top-five team going down to the wire over and over and over again, we ended up watching a fair amount of Washington Well, and Washington was in a couple late windows, too, where, like, the Arizona State game... Um, and a few of the others, and then obviously the Oregon games, right? Were where like, there's nothing were else. Big on TV. nationally, yeah. yeah, big nationally televised games where you knew they were interesting. So, if we watch a decent amount of Washington, I feel like I've got a pretty good sense of what they are. But I am curious to see them against Texas, just uh, in a little bit more of a a fulsome way, and, and kind of uh, also how the end of that game went. I mean, Washington, I know, was pretty well in control, and then and then wasn't <laughs> down yeah. the stretch. It doesn't seem like that was necessarily managed particularly well, but that that's part of it too. Is that it's 
when you see a team like struggle to close out games, it, it's hard to say that with Washington because they keep winning, right? You've got the only two undefeated Power 5 teams left in the country, so I can't really say that they've struggled to close out games, but it does feel like they've had a lot of situations where they could have could have put teams away, and then it went down to the wire and they just held on. So <laughs> I don't know what exactly the, the conclusion is out of that, but I'll have to think about that a little bit more before Monday. Yeah, yeah, that's that's real. But I think we both were of the mind that we would rather have Washington. And then I saw that offense, and I was like, that's scary. I'm reminded that they're very scary. Um, but, you know, if you told me two months ago that Michigan would get through Bama and would have a shot at a national title and that the opponent would be Washington, I'd take that running. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we were talking about you know, before the uh, the semifinal matchup that, like, uh, maybe it would have been nice to have the weaker matchup first, given that there's the long layoff. And, and then, you know, if you beat Washington, then you have less time for Bama to prepare for you. It doesn't seem ideal, but, I mean, <laughs> now all those things are true, except you've got the weaker matchup, hypothetically weaker, quote-unquote weaker, for the championship. You know, Michigan's a four-and-a-half or five-point favorite, depending where you look. So roughly, uh, you know, call it sixty forty, um, if you go off of the sort of implied implied lines or implied odds, and that's for the national championship. It's there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I'd have taken that running, and again, we, t- you know, th- all of these other bowl games have happened in the interim too, right? I mean, we saw Georgia annihilate fake Florida State, and I say fake Florida State. Right, with like I think 12 starters having opted out, including literally like seven 12 or eight of their best players. to 15 starters that they just were like, eh. And so, like, I'm not going to read too much into that as far as, you know, what that means, but you and I were very much both of the mind that Georgia being out was the best-case scenario. I still think that... Yeah, I think we said that on the podcast we after the, uh, the conference championship games. We did. That, yeah, I mean... <laughs> We wanted Bama. I didn't come away. Right. I didn't come away from the SEC championship game thinking like, oh God, Bama looks like an unbeatable juggernaut and uh, I wish we'd have gotten Georgia instead. I came away thinking, okay, Bama is kind of kind of ramping up. They're starting to look more like Bama, but they were probably fortunate to win that game with, you know, some turnovers and some some drive finishes that Georgia didn't quite have. And if you go off of like all the advanced metrics, you know, take them for whatever you think they're worth. But... And if you take more than a one game sample size, well, right, yes. Georgia's the much better team here. Correct, and that's what I mean by like the advanced metrics. On, on the whole, body of work over the course of the season, Georgia just looked like the much better team, and basically everything backed that up. And the fact that Alabama came out ahead in a, a one game sample didn't really sway my opinion on that. So Georgia being out of the field to me gave Michigan a better path to the national title. I said Bama, Texas, Washington. You're talking about, you know, depending on what metrics you look at or what lines you look at, a field where Michigan is the prohibitive betting favorite. And, you know, again, across like SP plus FEI, some of those metrics, you've got three teams that are like fringe top five, fringe top 10. Like that is, <laughs> that is the kind of opportunity that when you're the number one team to get that kind of field, you just you don't get that very often, and for Michigan to be the one, like that's that's the draw you hope for. Right, it's as good as it's going to get, and and you know again, it, I I don't think that Georgia is 
60 points better than Florida State if they're good players play. Well, of course. But I do think Georgia is significantly better than anybody else in the college football playoff field not named Michigan. And so having them out is was super advantageous. We rooted for it. People told us we were crazy because they were like, you know you're going to draw Bama at the four. And I was like, I didn't think that was true. I actually did think Florida State would get in. I thought they were not going to snub them like that. Yeah. But even even so, I said, I don't give a shit. I want the best team out of the field. Right. Get the best team out of the field. I think that best team is Georgia. I don't want them. I don't want them. Get them out. That's the best thing for Michigan's odds. And yep. here we are. And it's it's materialized in this way, right? Counterpoint to that is that we're seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter of like Georgia fans and like SEC writers doing all this stuff about how Georgia would be favored against Michigan in the national championship game. And I tweeted the meme of the kid scratching his head that just says, damn, I kind of don't care. Like, right. it does not matter at all. You had a playoff game, right? Right. You played a functional quarterfinal. That game was your quarterfinal. Ohio State-Michigan was Michigan's quarterfinal. That was a quarterfinal. Yep. Right? Like, as a practical matter, I, the Iowa game is not a quarterfinal. But, like, you know, for us, our quarterfinal is the Ohio State game. Your quarterfinal was your conference championship game. So was Texas's. So was Washington's. So was Florida State's. Right. We're the only ones whose quarterfinal came a week early because Iowa's not real but like right. you know everybody you can played. argue about the structure of the sport and whether that's optimal to get the best four teams in but that's how it is that's how it and is you all we all know how it works and i actually saw somebody make what i thought was a fair point which was that ohio state might have the better argument than georgia if that's the argument you want to make i mean they lost on the final drive came up you know what 25 yards short or whatever of beating michigan on the road whereas georgia lost in a, a quote-unquote neutral site in atlanta pretty pretty decisively actually to Bama like again I didn't think that Bama necessarily dominated that game but you lost pretty decisively you, you don't really have an argument at that point so yeah I, I don't care yeah <laughs> like I, win the games Michigan went out and beat the team you couldn't and now it's Michigan and Washington again the only two undefeated power five teams left in the country right playing for for everything. As God intended. As God intended. But no, like... It, if only it was in the Rose Bowl. If they'd have reversed it, that uh, Michigan-Washington for the Natty and the Rose Bowl, oh my God. I know, I know. But that's the thing, right? You, you had your shot. And I think this is just... I mean... They, people were doing this before the Florida State thing by far in a way. Like, this is not like the sure. Florida State thing. Like, it was the catalyst for all of this. But ultimately... This is what the Florida State ruling, you know, has opened the door to because it's like, you know, well, well, Bama would be favored. Bama is better. Like when you make the games not matter, you open the door to all of the. Well, just let's just vote then. Let's just vote on who the best four teams are and not like d- don't bother. Pull up the two four seven rankings. The BCS era. <laughs> like pull up the two four seven rankings and the composite of talent. And let's just not play the games. Let's just vote on who should be in based on talent level and SP go for plus, there. baby. I'm an SP plus stand. Like, you know it. what I mean? Like, why play the fucking games then? Right. And that's what you've opened the door to because you've made this argument like Bama would have been favored over Florida State. Well, okay, Georgia would have been favored over literally everybody in the field, basically. Right. So, like, shut but up. The games matter. You got to play the fucking games. You lost your quarterfinal. Go home. Right. Shut the fuck up. I'm sick of you. <laughs> you have two national titles in a row. Take a nap. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't matter Eat a at Snickers. All. Just, Shut up. I'm about to eat a Snickers. <laughs> you, there's literally a Snickers in this car where we are recording this right now. It's waiting. Yeah, no, it just, it doesn't matter at all. It's, it's cope because Georgia didn't win the game it needed to win to be here. Alabama did to get in. Washington did to get in. Texas did to get in. And now it's, uh, again, it's Michigan, Washington. The two teams who earned it, they're going to play for everything. 
Right. Make plays. Go win the game. Um, no excuses. Play like a champion. Yeah. I mean, not that... Or, I don't know. Are we talking about other bowl games? Ohio State and Missouri? Nah, they don't matter. <laughs> yeah. Irrelevant. Also, what did we say about Devin Brown? That's all I've got to say. Okay? okay? Turns out that backup quarterbacks are, in fact, worse than starting quarterbacks. It's a very weird corollary, but... Stunning. <laughs> Stunning. Don't matter. Bye. No. We're playing on Monday. That's loser talk. We're playing on Monday, bitch. We are. Pl- there is one college football game left this season, and Michigan is playing in it. Oh my god, it's real. It's real. So, if you're still here, I don't know what this audio quality sounds like. It sounds terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can yell at us on Twitter. It's it, fine. It's fine. Yell at us on Twitter. We're doing our best. We'll have our mics back and our music back and our setup back for a preview of Washington in the national championship game so my god if you're still here thank you for listening and we will see you back this week go blue